You don't have to listen to me, but I am awfully hard to ignore. Some might think that means I'm loud, but I don't need to be loud. Not when it's so much more effective to simply be desirable. And you did that, not me. I am what I am, simply. I have always existed in one form or another, but you put me on a pedestal. You gave me rules and levels and created an idealized version of me that is impossible to achieve. But you'll try, won't you? You'll try time and time again. You'll lie, cheat, steal, and kill because you have me and you want to keep me. But you'll do the same if you don't have me because my absence will drive you mad. You'll find me and lose me and find me again, but I'm never the same twice. Nothing has ever convinced more people to do terrible, unspeakable things than I have. And yet, there is nothing better in the world. I can take a moment to find, or a lifetime. It doesn't matter. Both experiences are equally incandescent. That's the secret. No matter how hard you try, you can't control me. I control you. I hurt you too. I hurt every single one of you. Every person who ever has or ever will draw breath knows the undeniably exquisite, breath-stopping, chest-heaving agony of my loss. And yet, with the greatest hope and most urgent need, you still sign every one of your letters with my name. Love. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Valentine's Day. Oh, we're having such a romantic time. It's great. We've got candles lit. There's velvet curtains all over in here. Yes, and we're sitting in velvet chairs. Ooh. You are. I'm currently sitting in this orthopedic chair. <laughs> so romantic. It is. <laughs> also, happy three years of We Would Be Dead. Yes. We celebrated our third anniversary. We sure did. It was a great time. It was really fun. Thanks to everyone who attended our little uh, live stream anniversary celebration this past Saturday. It was really fun. Mm -hmm. We had cake. 
And we did. That was really cute. It was. <laughs> and we talked about our favorite stuff from the past three years. Mm-hmm. And it was a really great time. Yeah. So yay. Uh, and we're also looking forward to an actual like bigger and better live special for St. Patrick's Day. Yes. In the near future, we will have dates for that uh, hopefully by next week. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it and we're going to make it real. We're going to yeah. make next week the time. Although this is how we jinx ourselves. I know. <laughs> I always think it's I'm doing myself a favor by setting a deadline. Yeah. Now it'll never happen. Oh, no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We do St. Patrick's Day every year. We arbitrarily picked that that was something we celebrated. Yes. And now we do. <laughs> so St. Patty's Day, it is. Um, maybe you can order a toast shirt. Yeah. you still have those for sale? Um, They are on our, I believe we have them on the merch store. Okay, yeah. let's take a look. We have really cute um, shirts that say toast on yeah, them. Yeah, I'll that double are, check that they're up there. They're particularly fun for St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. So anyway... That's coming up. Uh, today, we have a story swap for you guys, mm-hmm. which is always really fun. Yeah. Love a story swap. And since it's our anniversary and the title of our first episode was Gross Love, a title I don't know we ever beat. Yeah. So good. <laughs> but today's theme is strange love. Love it. Yeah. I'm surprised we Such haven't used love. that yet. I am too. And I probably didn't want like Dr. Strange Love Associations. Right. I wanted it to just be the two words, but I don't, we're yeah. doing it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I like some strange love, you know. Me too. I'm strange and also needy. So I'll take it if anybody's offering. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. <laughs> we like to try and infuse a little love into every one of our episodes, you know, to keep all of our fiends looking young and gorgeous. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but without love, strange or otherwise, Leslie and I appear in our true form, which is obviously 300-year-old swamp witches. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> that's what we sound like. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's super gross. We don't love it, but like we accept our reality. Right. <laughs> so if you guys would like to give us a little love back to prevent this inevitable transformation, the best way to do so is with a little validation. Hill worth dying on. I wish you guys could have seen Leslie's face for that one. She <laughs> felt it so hard today. Well done. I was feeling that um, Chris Stapleton. I was just going to ask you, like, did the yeah. na- national anthem give really you that? Did. Okay. It really did. <laughs> she was really channeling that energy. I'm sorry you guys couldn't see it. And you can give us some validation. But how? You must be asking yes. yourself. We went off on a tear. Sorry. I was thinking about Chris Stapleston. It's okay. <laughs> I'll, for back on task, I'll, I'll talk about how to give us validation. Okay. Thank you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention. Attention equals support. And support equals more and better content for you. Exciting. Yeah, that's good. But if you just can't wait one more minute for more We Would Be Dead in your life, don't worry, you don't have to. But how? (laughs) But how, you must be asking yourself. (laughs) Well, you can support us over on Patreon. Patreon. Think for that one today. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special mini-sodes, our weekly after-show host, Mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats, Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, and on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons. So come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. 
That sounds really nice, isn't it? It is a nice time. Yeah, we, I might we do always this. Have. You're you're there. I am. I hate to tell you this, but you're already there. Wow. Yeah. Well, I might see how I can do more. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and if all of that is a little too much for you, or you just want to do even more, you can follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. Leave us a comment. Post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell that poor guy at CVS that you saw buying last-minute drugstore flowers and a Russell Stover candy roulette heart for their undoubtedly disappointed lover. What's Barry. their name? Barry. Woo! You're on a roll. Yeah. They're coming to you fast now. <laughs> poor Barry. <laughs> then your friends and poor Barry can become fiends, and I feel like he needs a community. He does. He's not doing well. He does, yeah. Something went wrong. Mm-hmm. Then we can all hang out together. Wonderful. It'll be good for him and us. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll introduce him to Pam. Oh, Pam's got a lot of suitors. I know. Okay. Okay. And I think that's all I have in the way of news for this week. Next week, we will resume our Black History Month coverage. And I hope you guys have all listened to our two-parter on Alonzo Brooks. That was informative and important. So Mm -hmm. give it a listen if you haven't. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Just happy Valentine's Day. Aw, that was nice. Yeah. All right, then. On with the show. Leslie, since I just talked a whole bunch, why don't you go first? I would love to. Perfect. Tell me things. (laughs) Twas the night before Valentine's Day, and it was also Penny Jackson's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Penny. She was turning 66. Although, as the year was 2021 and she was living in the UK and the whole country would be on lockdown due to COVID-19 virus, the only person she could celebrate with was her husband, which is usually not too bad. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's generally who I celebrate with. Yeah. However, her daughter, Isabel, found a way to still celebrate virtually with her mother and father. Isabel and her husband had sent her parents a gourmet meal that they could share over Zoom. Oh, that's cute. Mm -hmm. Aww. As the night progressed and the main meal was being served, Penny brought out a very British side dish of bubbles and squeak. (laughs) For our U.S. listeners, this dish is a mix of potatoes and cabbage. Sometimes leftover veggies are added in and pan fried to crispiness. Called that because that's the sound it makes when you cook it. It bubbles and squeaks. Yeah. It's delicious, but consider it a low-class dish. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If if you're old enough to remember the Food Network show, The Two Fat Ladies, they made it. And I remember watching them make it and being like, (gasps) (laughs) it's not nice to look at. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're okay. There's a couple of different ways to make it. And the normal way is that like pan-fried like patty kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like a mashed potato with like the cabbage. Yeah. Which probably tastes good. Yeah. So, like I said, it's usually considered like a low-class dish. So when Penny's husband, David, saw the bubbles and squeak, he immediately had something to say about it. David. It's her birthday. Shut up, David. Yeah, seriously. He didn't think it was good enough for the meal their daughter had brought them and that it was embarrassing. The two began to argue and eventually turned off the Zoom so as not to make their daughter watch. The night died down and Penny and David went up to bed. But before the night was over, Penny would stab her husband (gasps) of 24 years three times, resulting in his death. I mean, he was being douchey. God, it was her birthday. Just let the woman have bubbles and squeak. Fucking whatever she wants. Yeah. 
says a lot about us that we're immediately on her side. But anyway, (laughs) I mean, we're totally impartial. Please continue. Okay. (laughs) So what happened? Yeah, what did happen? (laughs) You don't just kill your husband over bubbles and squeak, right? (sighs) Every, (laughs) we, I guess we thought that was fine. We were fine with it, so. (laughs) Everyone would describe Penny and David as a happy couple. Well, everyone except Penny, but we'll get into that. (laughs) Penny! (laughs) All right, David Jackson, who is 78, and Penelope Jackson, who is 66, had been married for 24 years and were enjoying retirement in Barrow Village. Barrow is a quaint residential coastal village in the district of Somerset, England. According to a 2011 census, the population was just over 1,500 residents, and many of them were older. So little town. Little town. Got it. Yeah. And, and it's like a town within a town. Oh. And it's like right on the coast. So it's a very nice, like— What are those about in England? Yeah. And this is—Bristol uh, would be their city. Oh, okay. And Which we've talked about close. Bristol before. Yes. So there you go. They both enjoyed cruising around the world and gardening. That's like in every article, everything. That's like— <laughs> I love to cruise the world do. and have a garden. Yeah. That's pretty nice. Yeah. This wouldn't be the couple's first marriage, Uh as they both had been married several times before. So let's start from the beginning. Several times. Several times before. Okay. Penny was a member of the Royal Air Force, the RAF, working in administration and accounts. This job allowed her to travel all around the world. And in 1973, at the age of, I think it's 17 or 18, it's a couple different um, versions of that. Just at the start of her life, she met and married her first husband, with whom she had two daughters. A few years into the marriage and after the birth of their second daughter, Penny's husband started to become increasingly violent towards her. The two ultimately decided to split, and Penny and the girls moved out of the house. Bummer. Soon after, Penny began dating someone new, an RAF serviceman. They married right away, but the marriage would not last long that long as her husband confessed that he was actually gay. Oh, okay. After a brief hiatus, Penny met Alan Warrender, who she met at work while stationed in South Wales. Alan was married with three children, though. Oh, Penny, what's what's happening, man? But that ring could not stop the heat that was rising between them. Oh, boy. And they began an affair that would last on and off for several years. Boy. Alan's wife, who ultimately found out about the affair, died of cancer at age 36. Oh, God. Yeah, she, like, found out right before. (laughs) Part of me, if I was that wife, part of me would be like, this has given me cancer. Yeah, yeah. I hope you're happy with yourself. Yeah. Right before I just died in front of him from Mm -hmm. spite. Right. (laughs) That's how I hoped it happened, too. (laughs) After her death, Penny was there to help Alan through his grief. Thank goodness she was there. Yeah, of course she was. And Alan decided he wanted nothing more than to start over with a new life with Penny. And so he did. The two got married and had a daughter together, a daughter named Isabel. She's the one that bought them the dinner. Sent them a nice meal, talking Mm -hmm. over Zoom, got it. The house was filling up with children, so they decided to send Alan's two daughters off to boarding school and his son to live with his dead wife's parents. Cool, cool, cool. Mm -hmm. Your kids have to go. (laughs) Got it. But... Part of this might have also been because they were struggling a little financially. So despite both having careers in the RAF and um, Alan turned his turned to his in-laws for money while also taking on more jobs in the in the RAF, one of which was a job in Saudi Arabia. This job would keep Alan away from his family for a bit of time. 
Penny also upgraded her job by moving over to the armed forces for better pay. So now she's like working in the army. Okay. And while Alan was away in Saudi Arabia and Penny was settling into her new job with administrations and accounts for the army, she met a new friend. A man named Lieutenant Colonel David Jackson. Oh, no. David was married to a woman named Sheila. So it was Oh, my God. There's a Sheila in my story. Is there? Yes. Okay. We connected. (laughs) Perfect. Oh, no. (laughs) So he had two daughters and a son from a previous marriage, one that ended after his wife found out that he was cheating on her with Sheila. God, these guys are. No, this is rough. No no one's like great in this. No one's coming out well. Yeah. David and Penny were getting closer at work and began an affair of their own. When Alan returned from the Middle East in 1993, he found out about the affair and killed himself days later. Oh, no. An inquest into his death found that he had killed himself by carbon monoxide poisoning while the, quote, balance of his mind was disturbed, quote. Um, and some of his family have since, like, tried to... I don't know. None of them felt settled that he really killed himself, which is the case with a lot of suicides. It's hard to accept for families. Um, I get it. But they just didn't know that he would just have an immediate response like that to finding out about Penny. And so they wondered maybe there was something else. Oh, no. This isn't looking great for Penny. But that has, that case is like done. Got it. So he is. They decided that there was nothing. It was a suicide. Yeah. Okay. Sheila would also learn of the affair. So this is David's wife. She would also learn of the affair after answering their home phone to hear Penny demanding to speak to David. Penny. Oh, my God. That is Penny. not how you mistress. No. What? You don't, you don't, like, let me talk to him. No. Come on, Penny. So David assured Sheila that the affair was over, but Sheila decided to divorce David anyway. She was not putting up with that. Mm-hmm. She knew, like, how oh, she was like monumentally stupid. You mean, yeah, okay, she was good. like, I know how our relationship started, yeah. so like, clearly, this is just a habit of yours. And she took, um, her and the stepkids, she took the stepkids and herself out. Oh boy, yeah. David and Penny would continue dating, and in 1996, they tied the knot. And David even adopted Isabel, Eddie's youngest daughter, into mm. his life and then raised uh, her like his own. Okay. Now married and both still working in the Royal Army, the little family moved to France, Germany, and then finally Somerset between 1996 and 1998. In 1998, David would receive some horrific news that his son Gavin, who was like early 20s, had killed himself after cheating on his wife. What is happening? Oh my God, what is happening in the story? So in his confession note, he wrote that he didn't want to be like his dad and didn't feel like he deserved to live any longer. Oh, no. I bet his dad was like, I am doing great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this would be like a pivotal change for David. Yeah, man. I would would hope so, actually. Mm -hmm. So the years following would prove to be emotional, but Penny would help her husband through his grief. The years passed and the couple, now both retired and all their children grown, lived alone in their home in Barrow Village. And though they definitely have some trauma between the two of them, um, they seem to be living happily ever after. So why then, on the night of February 13th, 2021, did Penny stab her husband, then write a confession letter saying, I have taken so much abuse over the years? I would love to know. Yeah. (laughs) Please, please tell me. (laughs) 
It would seem Penny did take some abuse. In court, Penny alleged that David became aggressive in the wake of his son Gavin's suicide. And a lot of people would say this, like right after um, Gavin committed suicide, David was a wreck for a while, which is... And fair enough. That's like fucking traumatic. I get it. he did kind of, he did get a bit aggressive and violent towards Penny. Can't be doing that. That's, Mm -hmm. That's not okay. Her daughter, Isabel, agreed on this and said when she was eight, David held a knife to his mother's throat during a party at their house. I think this was when they were over in Germany. Um, three other people had to step in and pull him off of her. Um, another time, he pinned her mother against the wall so hard she broke her nose. And one time during a fight with Penny, uh, David asked Isabel to go grab him her mother's mug, the one Isabel had bought her for Mother's Day. And when Isabel retrieved it, David smashed the mug in front of Penny, which is probably very traumatizing for everybody involved. Yeah, that's... Yeah. And though all of those occurrences were ugly and scary for Isabel and others who would have witnessed them, Mm -hmm. David's acts of violence seemed to end after he got help for his grief and anger management. At least this is what Isabel believed and others believed. Penny would allege that the aggression continued just behind closed doors. In 2018, Penelope texted her husband, writing, You frightened me. I cannot grow old like this. Another message from that year read, I love you, but I can no longer cope. In December of 2020, police were called to the Jackson home following a row over a TV remote control. (laughs) Penny told officers she had locked her husband in their conservatory so he would calm it down. In the conservatory? Mm Mm-hmm but that he had smashed his way out with a poker from the wood-burning stove. And she claimed he had been acting out of character following an operation to replace the battery in a deep brain implant used to manage a condition that caused his hands and limbs to tremble. Oh, so that's, yeah. that's like Parkinson's and yeah. stuff. Okay. And an officer told her the incident would be recorded as an assault and the couple should not be under the same roof that night. No. And when an officer phoned her a few days later, Penelope said that she and her husband had sorted out their problems and he had turned the voltage on the pacemaker battery down after a call had been put into the hospital. And he was back to his normal self and had no recollection of what had happened. Great. But like I, so that story I've heard a couple different places, but like nobody talks about this illness that he has as like it might have caused other problems. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That was like the only account that, was like stated in the trial hearing. I don't know what other illnesses you need that for, maybe like a seizure disorder, but I know it's a thing for Parkinson's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So we now know that there are some aggressive... (laughs) It's not going great over there. It's not going great over there. No. So there might have been some buildup. Penny might not have been in like the sweetest household. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it wasn't a great time over there. Maybe it wasn't a great time over there. All right. So let's go through the events of the night. Before dinner even started, Penny and David started arguing over setting up the Zoom. They were having some trouble connecting and the iPad hadn't been charged. Okay, we oh, all had that argument. That's an all pretty standard couple bickering. For sure. Yeah, no, that's 100% <laughs> yeah. normal. When the Zoom started, it was clear to Isabel that, well, and I've heard this back and forth. It was clear to Isabel and her husband, Tom Patterson, that Penny had been crying uh, but they both acted like they like everything was fine. But Isabel will also say that when the Zoom started, like everything was fine. But they do say that it kind of looked like maybe she had been okay, like maybe a little was, off. Maybe it was one of those things where like, oh, she just, she just sneezed or she was yeah. just 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like looking like you were crying. Some there are other ways. It's just like puffy. Yeah. Like she just looked a little puffy and not like not like super excited right away. But then everything yeah. kind of. There are other ways you could yeah. possibly interpret mm-hmm. that, and you don't want to be like, "Happy birthday, mom! You look like shit." Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But the dinner, regardless, it started off fine. They were having a good time, laughing, talking. Okay. All that. Okay. So then dinner began, and Isabel had sent her parents that gourmet dinner of steak, lobster, and crab. Hey, all right. I want my kids to send me that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And they started with the seafood. That was like a little seafood starter. First course. And after which they served the steak. And that's when Penny brought out the bubbles and squeak as a side dish. Okay. David was mortified and told her that she was ruining the fancy meal by having a side dish like bubbles and squeak. And they began arguing so much so that they had to stop the Zoom call so that they didn't argue in front of Isabel and her husband. And a little while later, Isabel received a message from her mother. And it said this, If it all goes tits, you have this message. I love you to the ends of the earth. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! So, if it all goes tits. Yeah. Oh man, first of all, gonna, gonna steal that. Yep. Stealing that. Yep. Um, so, day, it all went tits. <laughs> so Isabel called Penny immediately. <laughs> yeah. And was like, Mom, are you okay? And she was just like, oh, yes, I'm fine, dear. Oh, I don't feel like she is. And that was that. But Penny wasn't okay. Isabel was, But Isabel was used to her parents, like, arguing like this. She would describe them as both having hot tempers, but their arguments would always seem to diffuse fairly quickly. So she was just like, they do this. And then they're just like, whatever. Like, they both just over-exaggerate everything. Isabel has a very strange view of her family, which is... Like, I feel bad for her. Like, I'm I'm happy that she thought she had a great childhood. <laughs> but we but, would probably argue not as much. Yeah. Okay. Like, I, I, think, I think it just has confused her now. <laughs> oh, poor thing. Yeah. Now, according to Penny, after they had tired from arguing mm-hmm. and cleaning up dinner, she it grabbed... It is exhausting. She grabbed a knife from the kitchen and brought it up to bed with her to keep under her pillow for self-defense. What? Okay. Well, yeah. No, no, no. I guess they were... Mm-hmm. But they were done. For- All right. Keep going. <laughs> I think they had just like exhausted from yelling and okay. then they were just like not speaking at this point. This is right. like what I kind of gathered. Um, and so she must have just like cleaned up and thought like, let me just take this to bed just in, in case, case this doesn't. It all like, goes it- tits. Yeah, it all goes tits. When David got himself ready for bed, he noticed Penny was acting weird and was hiding something under her pillow. Like a big knife? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And he made her show him what it was, and that's when Penny pulled out the knife. During the trial, Penny would tell the court that she then went into the couple's spare room saying, I told David I had enough and was going to kill myself. And he said, get on with it then. (gasps) And then I thought, why should it be me? It's you. Fair enough. Then David laid down on the spare bed and goaded her into stabbing him. Penny claimed when her husband called her pathetic and told her to go back to bed, she slashed him with the knife, causing a wound to his chest. Yeah, don't fucking call a girl pathetic when she's got a knife and, like, wanting to stab you. That was very bad judgment. That was bad judgment. Okay. All right. Yeah, fair. That was bad judgment. This is why they need mediators for things like this to diffuse the situation. You're correct, of course. (sighs) David's wound was not deadly yet, but the cut was deep and it did cause him pain and a lot of blood. So Penny left the bedroom, taking the knife with her and went to the kitchen to write her confession note. (laughs) And it says, Oh my God. To whom it may concern, I have taken so much abuse over the years. Look at my records. 
but he was a good daddy. However, the mask slipped tonight, and this is, was, unforgivable. I accept my punishment. May he rot in hell. He was a good daddy. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> she had also scribbled in the corner of the note, self-defense. Just so you all know, it yes. was self-defense. Yes. All right. While she wrote the letter, David managed his way to the lounge where he grabbed their home phone and then walked into the kitchen calling 999 because that's, that's their 911. Before he dialed, he said to Penny, see how it feels to have the police phoned on you. Which also tells me that she probably has called the police on him numerous times during arguments. And also, like, don't just be like, I was terrible, wasn't I? Like, I know, they just keep baiting each other. That's Ugh. like, that's the thing that keeps happening in this. So David calls 999 at about 907 and talks to you. And also, I love this because they're an older couple. So, like, I'm thinking it's like almost midnight at this point. But it's only 9.07. Oh, my so God, like, it's 9 o'clock. Yeah. Like, they were already, like, getting in bed. <laughs> <and> like, <laughs> well, it's 8.30. Got to go to bed. Yeah. Stabby, stab, stab. Yeah. So okay. this must, uh, like, dinner must have been at, like, 5.30 or 6, I would assume. Like, <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, so he talks to the dispatcher while he and Penny are still arguing. And within the first minute of the phone call, David is heard telling Penny that she wouldn't dare stab him again and that she barely meant it the first time. What? But Penny was in no mood and stabbed David two more times, (sighs) causing him to scream in pain, dropping and drop the phone. Here's the thing. Like, what? What do you? Yeah. You wouldn't do it again. She already did it once. She did it once. And she's still mad. I know. Yeah. Okay. They just, they, I don't know. I don't know. Some people are just tempestuous like that. But still, you would think once you were stabbed, you'd be like, I probably should just shut up and get some help. Shut my damn mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Guess not. So Penny picked up the phone and began talking to the dispatcher. And guys, we're going to play this recording for you. It's our first 911 call, I think. Yeah. All right. And are you with him now? Well... I might just go and stab him again, but... Oh, I do not stab him again. Why? Okay, so just listen to my voice, okay? Stay on the line with me. I am complimenting. Okay, are you with the patient now? Well, I'm in the lounge and he's in the kitchen blending to death with any luck. All right, so just stay on the line with me. Look, this is not... You're not paid enough to do with this. It's not fair. Okay, well, ultimately, madam, I'm listening to your voice and you're the help I have available, so we need to help him, okay? No, I'm not. All right, madam, how many times have you stabbed him? Um, I did the once. You did the once? And then he said I wouldn't do it again, so I did it twice more. So, okay, so in total, how many times? Uh, three times. Three times, okay. Uh, once. I thought I'd get his heart. Well, he hasn't got one. And then twice in the abdomen. Wow. First of all, I feel like I live in the wrong country. I know. She was like, you're not paid enough. And the 911 operator, I had to write it down. He said, I'm sorry, madam. I'm listening to your voice and you're all the help I have available. Yeah. <laughs> 
need to help him. No. Do not stab him again. Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she is like this for the rest of the trial. Oh, my God. Yeah. She's so just like, this is, this is it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Rude. I know. And it's like, I do partly hate to laugh because it's still sad. Somebody course, is dead. Of this course. Is, this is horrible. Agree. This is why I had to pick a case in another country that I am so far removed from. Oh, my but God. But it's so British. It this really whole thing is. is so British to me. They're so just like <sighs> matter of fact about all of it. Yes. Don't stab him again. Why? Why? What do you mean, why? Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Every American on in the whole country would have been like so fed up with that. And this caller was like, listen, madam, you are all the help I have right now. <laughs> we need to help him. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> okay. So a total of 18 minutes passed on the phone call with Penelope refusing to help her husband in any way. <laughs> Police arrived on the scene at about 9.25 p.m. and calmly, they calmly knocked on the door, which I Everyone's love that. Everyone's calm, first calm. of all. Um, and Penny answered the door in her PJs. And they'll, I think they'll call her like the pajama murderer or something. Like, I would have gotten dressed. Yeah. Um, they asked her to come outside, which she did, but she kept asking for her coat. She told officers that David was in the kitchen bleeding to death. I don't mean to laugh. I know. I know. But it's like, it is comical because it's so weird. It's the matter of fact way she's treating yes. him. Well, he's in the kitchen bleeding to death. Yes. Can I have my coat? Yes. That's exactly how the body cam sounds. I love it. All right. She tells police that, quote, there's no issue. I stabbed him. He's an aggressive bully and nasty and I've had enough. When he says I wouldn't do it, I did it twice more. That's how we treat bullies. Yes. Stab them. Yep. Three times. Mm -hmm. Get the job done. Get it done. So police enter the kitchen and see David lying face down in his underwear in a pool of blood. Oh. Yeah. He didn't he, even have jammies. No. He just goes to bed in his undies, mm -hmm. which is fine. That's, yeah. He still had a pulse, but was not breathing, and they immediately began CPR. One of the officers heads outside to yell for the emergency services to come quickly in hopes of taking David to the ER and saving his life. Penny can be heard on the body cam saying, no, no, please don't. I should have stabbed him a bit more. <laughs> no! You're ruining all my good work. I tried to kill this man. Yeah. You're bringing him back. Yeah. <laughs> Opposite. <laughs> I want to play this woman in something. <laughs> they put Penny in the back of the police car to wait. They're like, just get her out of. Please, you have to get out of here. She's just like, can I have my coat? It's just in there. It's it's in the, clo the coat closet. It's chilly. Yeah, and uh, I forgot my slippers. <laughs> Please. <laughs> They're just like, dinner. Can I have a snack? And you can hear the the police officer just be like, yeah, it's just going to be a minute. There's a lot going on. We're busy. <laughs> We're kind of busy right oh now. Oh, my God. So while sitting in the, in the back of the police car, she told officers, I know what I've done and I know why I've done it. And if I haven't done it properly, I'm really annoyed. Really annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the emergency services attempt, they could not save David. So police take Penny to the police station. When she exits the car, they rearrest her, this time stating it was for murder instead of attempted murder, to which Penny replied, Oh, good. 
They then take her temperature and she says, that would be really great getting COVID on top of this. (laughs) She also tells the officers, I'm so sorry to be such a nuisance. Which is absolutely something I would say. Same. I'm really, I'm so sorry, you guys. Like, I know it's a mess. I know. You're probably like busy and you have other things to do in lockdown. I, d- I had to do something. I didn't mean to draw you all in. Did you not see Tiger King yet? I mean, go home and do that. It's fine. <laughs> you don't get paid enough. I know you what I pay in taxes. taxes. Deal with it. I know what I pay in taxes. <laughs> so at this point, Penny has been arrested for suspicion of murder, though it's pretty clear cut case. So suspicious. Yeah. Um, regardless, police had to question her again the next day on Valentine's Day to get a formal statement, and this time she wasn't as talkative. Instead, she wrote a letter stating that David had been abusive and controlling toward her. She had no choice and denied her charge of murder, but instead manslaughter, and she was acting in self-defense. And also in the UK, they do not have degrees of murder. So it's murder or manslaughter, and that's it. Yes, Mm -hmm. but the manslaughter would have been a lighter sentence. Yes. So during the first trial on October 11th, 2021, which I thought was like neat, like if this was America, it would have been like we would have just probably been getting to trial now for this. Okay, so mine is takes place in 2017. Still no trial. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So during the first trial on October 11th, 2021, the prosecution contended that the emergency calls which were played to the jury were evidence of a murder committed in cold blood. But the defense argued that the killing was the result of decades of shame, abuse, and secrecy that finally boiled over. Penny has said the violence dated back to 1998, shortly after David's son from his first marriage killed himself. Isabel described her father as a broken man in its wake and observed three violent incidences, uh, one of which is when he held the knife to Penny's throat. Penny said in the following years, her husband controlled which TV shows she watched and repeatedly Mm. abused her, including strangling, verbal aggression, and forced sex. Mm. She felt ashamed and afraid of leaving him, but also grateful to her husband for being a good father to Isabel. Oh, and that's right. Like, sometimes I forget that. Like, he did, he did fully adopt her. And actually, for a time being, Isabel thought that that was her biological dad. And then I think it was the parents of Alan, her actual father, or not, uh, like, the family Valen, like, reached out to her and was just like, you're, like, our family, too. Oh. And, like, she has, like, half-sisters, you know? Like, yeah. So. Hopefully they're there for her now. Yeah. In December, the couple's toxic relationship is said to have worsened when a row over remote control resulted in her calling the police after she locked her husband in the conservatory uh, where he was brandishing a poker. Um, Her computer's search history showed this that she searched domestic violence refugees okay. after that evening. Okay, that's a better search. I was, I, my brain always goes to like, did she immediately search for, how do I get away with murder? And how yeah, do no, I no, make no. chloroform? No, no. Okay. She was looking for a safe place to go. Isabel would still go on to testify that her family life was wonderful. And yes, there were struggles early on, but they have moved past those and her father was not abusive. Okay. Other family and friends would testify that Penny was narcissistic and would bait David and others into arguments. Like everyone else was always having trouble with with her. She was always doing weird things that they were just like uncomfortable around her a lot. Um, Many accused her of being the aggressor and that David was the quiet man who wouldn't have asked for help. This is like always Mm -hmm. the argument. I know. All right. But even David's brother, Alan Jackson, uh, would go on to say that his brother was an arrogant bully. 
So at least like his brother is just like, I know what my brother is like. Yeah. So ultimately on October 28th, after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of guilty. Penny was sentenced to life with a minimum term of 18 years. As he sentenced her, Judge Martin Picton remarked that Penny had shown not a shred of remorse for the killing. And Judge Picton said, despite professing to still love him, you sought to portray David Jackson as a monster. Whilst there was no doubt as in any marriage, points of friction that the lockdown would have exasperated, I have no doubt that he was nothing like the person you have claimed, which I thought was like rough. Like that's because other people were like, like he clearly abused her in the beginning record of it too so it's not like you can say that didn't happen i know so judge picton continued you took the life of another human being that is a terrible thing to do and it represents a burden you and all the other family members will have to bear for the rest of their lives their memories of david jackson will always be tarnished by the manner of his death and by the way you sought to portray him Mm, that's like an unfair statement from that judge. I know. I thought so too. I, I do. I mean, I'll. She didn't need to kill him. No, absolutely not. And and there's, yeah. it's wrong, obviously. Yes. but like he. I feel like you didn't know enough to say those things, right. and you did. And that's and like I think other people will argue that came. You know that some mm-hmm. of the people that were in the trial would say like. Penny had, she had been married previously before. She had gotten out of these relationships. Why did she feel stuck in this one? Why Mm -hmm. couldn't she ask for help? Why couldn't she leave? I don't know. Things change. And trauma trauma causes, I mean, she was already traumatized from past relationships. And and then she had kids and she cheated on her last husband who killed himself for this guy. That's extremely traumatic. You don't, uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. You Mm know, they don't know what's going on there. And then she like must, you know, in one and one or two sources, I had read that she did hold the like she never told Isabel that 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 her real father was Alan, that it was this guy. So she didn't even know about this Alan guy who had killed himself. God. Oh, so there was just a lot. Yeah. But that was that was the case. That is a that is some strange love. That is some strange love. (laughs) It is. Especially Um, if she's saying that she still loves him, but just couldn't do it anymore. Couldn't handle it. Yeah. He insulted her foods. Yeah. She said, no, thank you. Guys, we can, there is a lot of help out there if you're in a relationship like this and you need to get out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes. There are all, there are lots of ways to extricate yourself from Mm -hmm. domestic violence. Yes. Okay. My turn. Your turn. When we decided on a theme for this week's episode, I just I just knew where I was going to end up. Okay. Any guesses where mine takes place? Um, no. I don't know. Kansas. It's, it's Florida. We're, Florida. We're, we're going oh. to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I will be talking about the murder of Marlene Warren, better known to most as the killer clown murder. Oh, boy. Yep, we finally made it through the world of crimes far enough to hit an actual killer clown. Mm. Like someone who killed within clown in the uniform. Oh boy. I know John Wayne Gacy is pretty ubiquitous, but Pogo the Clown was a side hustle he ran at kids' parties. Not the outfit he put on so that he could murder people. Oh, I didn't know that. No, yeah, no, he was just, he did horrible things in his basement as just John. This one killed on clown. So, yeah. 
And there's also balloons in the story. And I'm really mad I didn't use it for half a ween when we talked about balloons and clowns. Mm -hmm. Like, how did I? I failed you all, and I'm really sorry. (laughs) And before I begin, I should state that the killer clown in this story is not a member or representative of the clown community. And this occurrence is not an indication that clowns are awful or sadistic or crazy. And I say this because it like did serious damage to the business that is party clownery in Florida for a while. Like people lost major parts of their income because everyone was terrified of clowns. That sucks. Right. So I want to say that we know a clown. He's a delight. Don't blame this on clowns. Anyway, here we go. It is May 26th, 1990, and we are in Wellington, Florida. There's quite a lot of economic disparity in Florida. So when I say Florida, you don't really know what to think in terms of the town I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Let me begin by saying that Wellington is in Palm Beach, not even West Palm Beach, like on the island proper, which is a wealthy community with a capital wealth. And that's why it's called Wellington. Mm, Yes, (laughs) it should be called Wellington. To give you an idea of just how rich I'm talking, the home of General Foods Corporation heiress, Margaret Merriweather Post, a sprawling estate she called Mar-a-Lago, is just 38 minutes by car from Wellington. Now, some of you may know Mar-a-Lago better as the home of another wealthy person, but uh, he never hired full circuses to perform for hundreds of underprivileged children on its grounds, so... We're just going to give Margaret Merriweather Post the title of owner. (laughs) So if you were to drive around Palm Beach, you also might run into Bruce Springsteen or Bill Gates or Jimmy Buffett, as they all have enormous houses in this community. In fact, there's a whole stretch of land they call Billionaire's Row. Okay. Rich. Yeah. Super rich. Today, my story takes place in an impressive home in a gated community called Arrow Club. Nice. Why is it called Arrow Club? Because everyone who lives there has a fucking plane. Mm. They, they just plane to work. Yeah. Just fly where they need to go. Well, yeah, because nobody, like, works in Florida. No. <laughs> Here's a, just a little description because I found it interesting. The Wellington Aero Club is a private aeronautical community consisting of 248 single-family homes located in the village of Wellington. The luxurious Mediterranean and Key West-style estate offers four to six-bedroom floor plans and a range from one million upward to four million. Each home sits on approximately one acre of land. Some homes feature their own private hangar, runway, and tie-down. A 4,000-foot lighted and paved runway sits in the center of the community, and it is used solely for Aero Club residents. The runway is approved for jets up to 12,000 pounds And all taxiways feature True Grid, which prevents sinking of aircraft after heavy rains. Aviation gas is available at the on-site refueling facility. Since the runway is centrally located within the community, runway access is timely and convenient. Mm. Wellington Aero Club residents not only enjoy the luxury of flying right to their doorstep, but also have access to the community's pool, spa, and clubhouse. The clubhouse features a game room, social area, and fully equipped kitchen, making it the perfect locale for hosting parties and special occasions. Wow. They really have everything. In the middle is a runway for your jet. And I'm sorry, it's only one to four million dollars for a house. I feel like this is a dated website. Yeah. <laughs> 
because I was going to be like, uh. Yeah, the description is on a website that's kind of dated, but the description is like really good. So that's why I used it. Um, when like a, a two room villa's house is going for like 450 right Yeah, now. it sure is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's pretty low key chill place to live, right? Yeah. Yeah. So on this particular May morning in 1990, we are in the Aero Club home of Marlene and Michael Warren, which is located on a road called Takeoff Place. Adorable. Isn't that cute? Yeah. Yeah. It is about 1030 in the morning and Marlene is sitting at the kitchen counter having breakfast with her son, Joe, and three of his friends. And they're like, it's very 90s environment here. So the counter is that like gray countertop with black stools. There's like ashtrays on the counter and stuff. Mm. So we are heavy into (laughs) 1990. And it's a pretty normal, lazy Saturday. There's coffee in the pot. They're making breakfast. And Marlene's husband, Mike, has gone off to the racetrack for the day. And he's left earlier that morning. So he's not having breakfast with anyone. Because the two of them owned a racehorse, too. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't unusual for him to, like, go off to the races. At 10.45, Joe and his three friends recall hearing a car pull into the circular driveway. From the window, they can see that it is a white Chrysler LeBaron, and none of them knew this car. So they see the car pull in, they're like, oh, somebody's here. I don't know who that is. The car parks, and out of the door comes a clown in full regalia, holding flowers and two bobbing Mylar balloons. Okay. All right. It's not a sight one usually sees every single day. Mm-hmm. Marlene was enchanted, and they all commented, oh, look at the clown! <laughs> I know. Seconds later, there is a knock at the door and Marlene excitedly answers it. There stood the clown in a vibrant, shiny, one-piece costume, orange afro wig, white gloves, full face of makeup, and a red, spongy nose. Bozo would have been proud. Hmm. Some of us would be horrified. Yeah. If we were to feel. I know. (laughs) Me too. If we were met with such a sight, but not Marlene, I would have been like, don't answer the door. Don't answer it. Everyone hide behind the couch. (laughs) If she has something to leave, this clown will leave it. But not Marlene. She was super excited. Could not have been happier. Marlene's family were a a clown-loving people, actually. Um, Her mother has an entire room in her house that is just the clown room. No. Mm -hmm, Yeah, she sure does. Paintings of clowns, portraits of clowns, clown figurines, paintings of clowns that Marlene made in her youth. Clowny clown, clown, clown. Wow. Yes. I didn't know people like that really existed. They sure do. So to Marlene, this was like fun and exciting. Okay. It was a thoughtful gesture right. from somebody because they knew, they're like, oh, Marlene likes clowns. Let's and get is her this one. Valentine's Day? What day is this? No. Okay. This is in May. Um, okay. Okay. Everyone sorry. else probably knew. <laughs> I, just, I didn't get one on Valentine's yeah. Day. The clown, you know, when she opens the door, there's the clown. The clown doesn't speak a word but held out the flower arrangement, which consisted of a white wicker basket with red and white carnations and white moms, you know, like kind of just like filler flowers, Mm -hmm. and the two Mylar balloons, one white with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves on it, and the other a shiny red heart-shaped balloon with the phrase, you're the greatest, in white cursive handwriting across the front of it. So the clown holds these out and smiles, and Marlene smiles back and takes them. From the kitchen, Joe and his friends were laughing and eating and wondering, like, what this weird little visit was all about. Joe overhears his mother say, oh, how pretty, followed by a loud pop. The conversation at the kitchen counter grinded to an immediate halt, and all four young adults ran to the door, which was just steps away, and were met with a horrifying sight. 
The door was wide open and the clown was standing backlit in the frame. Marlene was slumped on the pink carpet runner, blood pouring everywhere. Nobody could process what had just happened. Yeah, what the fuck? I know, right? It was horrific. And when tragedy strikes, we don't go, oh, I know exactly what happened. We just kind of try and make it the nicest version of whatever. And that's really hard when you're looking at a clown standing in the Mm -hmm. doorway and your mother shot on the floor. But most of us don't immediately assume the worst. It takes a minute. Joe looks down at Marlene bleeding on the carpet, then up at the clown. He remembers specifically seeing the clown's dark brown eyes and the pistol in its hand, the costume, orange wig, and gloves, and then it turning away and casually walking towards its car. Casually. And then it dawns on him. That fucking clown just shot his mother. As the puzzle was coming together in Joe's mind, the clown is just calmly walking towards the car, down the driveway, not ever speaking a single word. This clown is not in a hurry. I cannot stress that enough because it's what everybody that was there said. They're like, this clown was very casual and very like pointed. Yeah, this is the clown of nightmares. It is the clown of nightmares, 100%. Joe screamed at it to turn around. So at this point, Joe's like, hey, you motherfucker, like, turn around. And he's calling it every name he can possibly think of, but the clown doesn't even acknowledge that someone's saying anything. It just gets in the car, which is running, and starts to drive away. Okay. That was terrifying. This is awful. No one knocks at the studio door. Oh, my God. Recording at present. I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. No worries. Oh my God. Why do people come to the door? I have two doors. I know. I don't know why this looks like, like there's clearly. My front door has like a steps and a flag. This is the porch. So I guess some people get confused. But it's like everything is shut. I know. We're all curtains up. welcoming. It is not welcoming at all. (laughs) So why do people come to the door still? Let me present to you a long thing about something. Absolutely not. I'm sorry. And he just like turned around and didn't even speak when I said, you can't right now. I'm like, you just knocked in on my life. I I don't have to let you give me a presentation. God damn it. And by the way, what he wants me to do is give them $100. Yeah. When he comes back tomorrow, Will is answering the door. I'll probably give him a hundred dollars. No, <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> we should definitely leave part of that because that was wild. Oh man, I just talked so about scary. a random door knock, and then there, there it was. <gasps> okay, so it's just a guy asking for money for. Uh, I don't know what this is. Program for the in- international assessment of adult competencies. Well, they want money. Oh boy. Anyway. Okay. Oof. Joe's friend Jeannie had dropped to the ground next to Marlene, a feat Joe would have had a harder time accomplishing because he had a broken leg at the time. Mm. So he's like leg in a cast crutches. He can't like sit down okay. right next to his mom super Which is easy. also why he is not running out the door. Exactly. Okay. He's not, he okay. is not fast right now. Okay. Jeannie rolled Marlene over to her side, which first aid wise is like, that's the smart thing to do. Yeah. And in doing so, she noticed there was a large hole in her upper lip because she had been pretty much shot point blank rage in the face. Mm. Yeah. And then chaos starts to break out because of course it does among Joe and his friends. Joe knew that he had to go after the clown. So he like Mm -hmm. hobbled 
into his front yard after the clown would not respond to him, screaming at mm-hmm. it, and climbed into the car, broken leg at all, and was, like, struggling to, like, get the car yeah. going. Now, Jeannie, who's crouched next to Mar- Marlene, is like, you cannot do this alone, obviously. You can't barely walk around. And she's like, he was hurting himself. I had to go with him. So she gets in the car with him, and they take off behind the clown and give chase. Um, the other friends... We're like, well, I mean, there's not much more we can do here. So they went running out into the front yard to look for help. And it doesn't take them long because this is a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's pretty. It's a nice day in May. Anybody yelling, people would be like alert. And they're already all outside. It's 1045 oh, in the morning. Okay. It's like a nice day. They're all out polishing their planes or whatever. Yeah. So there had been several witnesses to the clown and the car and the loud sound. Uh, The first neighbor they saw, like the first person they ran into, was a man named Bill Kramer. And they told Bill, quote, Joey's mom has been shot. So Bill, whose wife is with him, says, like, go inside to his wife. It's like, you go call 911. I'm going to stay with them. Mm -hmm. So good on him. That's a good plan. The wife goes inside, calls 911. Meanwhile, Jeannie and Joe are chasing this white Chrysler LeBaron. But it seems like they, no matter what they do, they can't really catch it. It's just taking turns. Measured and calm, again, like not peeling out, not freaking out, just driving in a way that wouldn't even get them a ticket. Mm -hmm. But it disappears. They just, they can't catch up with it. And it did have a head start too. And let me just say that that kind of measured confidence is not only terrifying, but very successful in in like a crisis or a tense situation. Like it's, it's scary because this is the perpetrator of a crime. But if your wits are totally about you and everyone else is chaos, you're, you're going to be the one that comes out on top. <sighs> so Joe and Jeannie realize they're not going to catch this Chrysler LeBaron, so they turn around and they go back home just in time to see emergency response teams pulling up. So clearly it doesn't take long for 911 to mm-hmm. arrive. An ambulance was loading up Marlene, and they took her off to Palms West Hospital in extremely critical condition. Term I've not run into, but it says extremely critical everywhere. Mm-hmm. Joe gave a statement to the police, He told them about the clown and the car and answered any immediate questions they had. And then he went off to be with his mother. Okay. Three days later, Marlene was taken off life support and died. Oh, so sad. Yeah, it's terrible. But like, what the fuck? Right? Yeah. That is one of the craziest things you can even imagine happening. So police officers on the scene said just that. They said it was the most bizarre thing they had ever run into. An unknown clown murdered this mild-mannered woman in cold blood in an incredibly high-profile neighborhood in broad daylight with tons of people around. It was nuts. The investigation began immediately. Police took what evidence they could from the scene, including the balloons and the flowers, and spoke to every witness and neighbor they could find. They set out to find any white Chrysler LeBaron that crossed their paths and went out to find, notify, and speak to Marlene's husband, Mike, and any family members they could get a hold of, hoping they might be able to find out, like, who might want to do this to this woman? Yeah. So let's find out a little bo- more about Marlene. Okay. Marlene was born on April in April of 1950 in Macomb County, Michigan. She was a happy, warm, creative, vivacious girl who fell in love and got married when she was just a teenager. So her first marriage also happened when she was, like, you know, 17 years old. Okay. Marlene and her first husband, a man named Joe Ahrens, had two children together shortly after their marriage, uh, boys named John Jr. and Joe, before they got divorced when Marlene was just 20. So it was a short marriage, eventful. Two babies, done. Um, and the boys were still just babies. And like Marlene was kind of a baby herself. 
But after the divorce, their father left. We never hear anything about him again. Mm -hmm. Great. But Marlene wasn't giving up and just settling to be like in Michigan with her parents. No, no, no. She was going to carve out a life for herself. And it wasn't long before she fell in love again, this time with Michael Warren. Marlene and Michael were married and Michael took on the role of father to her two boys pretty naturally. So this is another case where he, I don't think he formally adopted them. No, I know he didn't. But Mm -hmm. Joe says, like, this is the only dad I ever knew. He was dad. He was a good dad. He just, we had a normal life. Great. And through the first half of their marriage, or first three quarters, I should say, the couple did quite well. At least Marlene did. She was very successful in business. The family moved to Palm Beach, where Marlene had a couple of rental properties, which probably brings in a ton of money. Yeah, for sure. In a community like that. They also bought some racehorses and started a used car lot where you could buy a used car or rent one. Hmm. Okay. Let me just say, I've dropped the fact that they owned a racehorse into this a couple times, but that is not a standard pet, nor is it the price of a standard horse, nor... Do these athletic animals like live on premises? Right. This is a hobby that's like only for a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. According to the internet, because I only did a quick Google search, the average cost of a racehorse just to buy it is $76,000. And that's just like an okay racehorse. If you want a really good racehorse, it can be millions of dollars. Yeah. And it costs about $95,000 a year in expenses and boarding. And that doesn't include any training. So wild. Yeah. Yeah. I just, when they just drop like, they had some racehorses into into the equation. I'm like, I don't think people understand how insane it is to own racehorses. Um, I have a fun fact for you, Holly. Please. So um, Rowan University in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. They allow, so most campuses, I think, now allow like um, a service animal or a therapy animal yes. on campus. So, besides like for therapy pets, besides a dog or a cat or a bunny, you oh, could bunny. also have a small horse. Like little Sebastian? Like little Sebastian. I, I think that's what they meant. Yeah, just the small horse. That would be great. No one has yet to bring one. I don't know if most people know that, but you are allowed if you go to the Rowan University campus. I would like more people to know that. Yeah. So that someone does eventually bring one. But I was like, where did that, like, how did that one get put in? (laughs) Maybe service um, little horses are common. Maybe. Maybe. We don't know. Yeah. They could be. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, that's just something I had to drop in to conversation. And um, (laughs) But the used car business that they have is a little less uh, big hat and day at the races. Their lot is a place called Bargain Motors, which is now an auto parts store, and it is located in less exclusive West Palm Beach and was not so lovingly referred to by neighbors as, quote, the kind of place you went to if your credit was bad or you didn't have any money for a down payment. It's like shisty, high interest, no money down. Okay. Probably taking people for all they're worth. It may have been seedy, but it did the trick. And in everything I read, it seems to me that Michael runs this business. Marlene does her own thing, but this is the business that they bought together. But like, it's his business, essentially. So let's check back in with the story, shall we? Three hours after the shooting, which means that police officers probably knew about as much as we know right now, A phone call comes into the local sheriff's office, and it is an anonymous tip. Hmm. 
The person on the other end of the line says that they have heard of Marlene's shooting and that investigators should do themselves a favor and look into her husband Mm -hmm. and a woman named Sheila Keene, with whom they believe him to be having an affair. Well, well, well. Okay. That's interesting. So what about Michael? There aren't a lot of like the husband did it t-shirts out there in the world for nothing. Mm -hmm. Michael has what his Palm Beach neighbors called that quote, used car rent-a-wreck personality. Okay. That is not a compliment. Basically, he's shady. Marlene's parents said he was, quote, confident and, quote, rough around the edges. So they tried to put it nicely, Mm -hmm. um, but other neighbors would get a little more um, definitive, and they called him aggressive, manipulative, and isolated. Oh, boy. (laughs) Little bit less nice. Neighbors recall Michael as the kind of, like, a non-entity in the community, They never ran into him at, like, the grocery store or a community event. He just kept to himself unless he was trying to sell you a car. Joe Aaron, Marlene's son, remembers Michael as great for a time, right? Like I said, he's the only dad they knew. For a while, he was great. But in 1988, when Marlene's older son, John, Joe's brother, died in a car accident, things began to change. Hmm. Michael was less involved. He was less present. He was angry a lot, and he and Marlene started fighting all the time. The marriage really took a turn for the worse. And hey, the death of a child is really hard for most marriages to survive. This isn't a commentary on that. But I do find it interesting that, I mean, this fact is also everywhere. Like, oh, he was, after the, the older son died, he like got really mean. But nobody mentions like he came into these kids' lives when they were a couple years old. Right. It's like a little bit. Not that they weren't his children, but we'll go on to learn a little bit more about that. Okay. Beyond that, there were things Michael said, things Marlene said, and things people noticed at the time that in the cold, harsh light of retrospect seemed pretty suspicious. First, Marlene's parents recalled her saying to them in passing rather recently that if anything ever happened to her, Michael would be to blame. Okay, if anybody ever says this. I know. Like... It's too late. Blame them already. already, It's done. Yeah. That's a pretty big tip. Yeah. Investigators were then approached by a man named Chris DeSantis. Now, Chris is a lawyer in Palm Beach, and he had represented uh, Marlene's son, Joe, in court. Now, it is neither here nor there in terms of this case why Joe was in court, but he was. And they finished court for the day, and they were leaving. Marlene walked away with Joe, and Michael kind of hung back and was talking to Chris as they walked out of the courthouse. When they were a safe distance from anyone else, Chris said that Michael, quote, he asked me what the ramifications would be if a husband killed his wife on her estate, which means if a husband kills his wife, does he still get the money? Not great, Chris. Yeah, that's not good. (laughs) Not great. But Chris thought that this is like a law question. He's like, well, I'm a lawyer. He's probably interested in the law. I'll just answer him. I know, well, you need to be thorough. Uh, yeah. I'd like to know everything. Of course. Uh, so Chris replied with what, uh, what we will later realize is a little too much information, but he did do it innocently. Mm-hmm. I have no uh, doubt of that. Chris, he's not a bad guy in this situation. He just said a lot. He said, quote, it really isn't an issue of whether a man kills his wife. The question is whether the man is convicted of murdering his wife, because if he's convicted of murdering his wife, he wouldn't inherit. But if he were convicted of a lower charge, He would. Not only that, Chris continued, quote, but if he had a friend who did it and they couldn't tie him as an accessory to the friend, he'd get away scot-free. 
Oh my god, were they just like doing this over drinks or something? Yeah, they were I like walking just... from the courthouse to the car. Oh, this guy was probably just like, this is a fun side of my job. Let yeah. Me just <laughs> he does. Chris does at this point mention that like he noticed that like Marlene is nowhere around. Like he's like, oh, we're having this conversation in private. Yeah. Okay. That to me is ominous. And Chris does come back later and says more. Oh, <laughs> so man. just Chris. Yeah. That's, okay. In addition to all of this weird foreshadowing, investigators had uncovered the fact that everything Michael and Marlene owned was in Marlene's name. So all of their properties, the business, the racehorse, the plane, all of it is in Marlene's name. So by the looks of it, Michael didn't have much to his own name apart from his wife, which means in the case of a divorce, who knows what he would have been entitled to. And since he's not even the biological father of these children, there's not a whole lot there either. Michael and Marlene had been married for 18 years at the time of the shooting. Marlene was 40 years old and Michael was 38. So get it, Marlene. It's not often we see pairings with an older woman and a younger man. But um, that's going to end real soon because Sheila Keene was 27. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Remember her? Mm -hmm. Remember Sheila? Yeah. And so who the hell is Sheila Keene, right? Sheila was a pretty young woman with long brown hair and brown eyes who grew up in the Everglades in a family that didn't have a lot of money. Her upbringing has been described as a little bit country, a little backwoodsy, if okay. you will. She had a lot okay. of brothers. But I have no proof of that, so we'll just put it out there as something that is possible to likely. And from what I've seen of uh, life in the Everglades, Everglades, it's pretty wild, wild and woodsy out there. Whew. Sheila was referred to as, quote, not scared of anything and, quote, tough as nails. Okay. And I mean, if she grew up like wrestling alligators, like these Everglades dude on, dudes on YouTube, then um, she, she would have been those things. Yeah, yeah. But tough doesn't get you everything. Thankfully, Sheila was beautiful. And if you weren't crossing her, she was also a pretty good time. A combination which made her pretty popular with gentlemen callers. And so it was that Sheila married an older man with money, moved out of the Everglades, and started her own business repossessing cars. Allow me to explain this a little further. Sheila was the middleman, so if you purchased a car from, oh, I don't know, say, Michael Warren, for no money down and an incredible interest rate, and then found you uh, couldn't make the payments for several months, well, then Michael, or, or whoever the lender may be, mm -hmm. you know, would hire a company like Sheila's to go and take the car and bring it back to his lot. Okay. She drives the repo car. Right. This was perfect for Sheila, who was not afraid to back her truck up into any situation. Like, doesn't matter. You're, you're mad. You're fighting it. She does not give a shit. She will take that car. Okay. This is all adding up. <laughs> yeah. And just in case my clever example wasn't clear enough, Sheila did work for Michael Warren. And since he routinely sold cars to people who absolutely could not afford them, she worked for him a lot. But even so, there are only so many cars that can be sold and repossessed, and Sheila seemed to always be around. Employees reported she and Michael would take long lunches together, and some saw them kissing, or more than kissing, in his office. Oh. Yeah. Remember, she doesn't work for his company. She's just a third-party independent contractor. Mm -hmm. Marlene has suspected there was another woman. And she even suspected it was Sheila, but Michael denied it angrily. In fact, just before her tragic death, Marlene had gone straight to Sheila and confronted her as, hmm, that doesn't look very good. 
Yeah. Sheila does it. Does not. So what does the husband have to say for himself? Well, first of all, he does have an airtight alibi. Michael was in a car on the highway on the way to the racetrack, and he had several friends with him at the time of Marlene's murder. So he was not there. The friends and the racetrack can back this up. He told detectives he was never unfaithful to his wife and had no idea who could have done this. Awful. And then he inherited the business and the house and the rental properties and the horses all for himself and never spoke to Marlene's son, Joe, ever again. Oh, my God. Yep. Which is why I said, remember, biologically, these are not his children. And he's not the kind of guy that I guess thought I want them for the rest of their lives. They're my babies. Yeah. Okay. So what about Sheila Keen? Yes. She, of course, denied the affair as well and claimed that she was out on the road repossessing cars at the time of Marlene's death. Though there was no specific destination at the time and on the road is hard to prove in the pre-traffic cam car black box era. So there's no way to be like, I can see where your truck went or we found you in traffic. You just have to take her word for it. And since her business was just her, no one was with her either. Hmm. Detectives then turn to evidence, right? And this is the fun part because they do some really fun old school detective work. First, there was the flowers and the balloons. While they had no fingerprints on them, which everyone kind of suspected as the clown was wearing gloves, Mm -hmm. they seemed pretty generic. So it might be hard to find out where they came from, but maybe not. One thing, though, did stand out, the Mylar balloon in the shape of a heart. The red heart says, you're the greatest on the front. White cops are like, We haven't seen that like everywhere. That's not a common grocery store in the area balloon. It's a little bit unusual. And it turns out that it was only available for sale at one Publix grocery store. Oh, that is lucky. Okay. Very lucky. (laughs) And it was the one that was really close to Sheila's apartment. Okay. Weird. Convenience. (laughs) So weird. So the detectives asked the good folks of Publix if they could help them look into the matter. And they said they sure could. Because employees at that Publix remember a woman who looked exactly like Sheila. In fact, they could identify her in a lineup coming in and buying flowers and two balloons. Okay. One with Snow White on it and the other a red heart that said, you're the greatest Hmm. across the front on the day of the murder. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. She's busy. Yeah, she is. And just in case more proof was needed, there is a record of the purchase. And it happened just 90 minutes before the murder and the buyer paid in cash, which fucking, God damn it, had you paid with a credit card, we'd be done. Right. But they couldn't prove that, you know, it definitely was Sheila. There's no cameras. They just know that these people said it's someone who looked exactly like Sheila. Mm -hmm. And also there is the matter of the fact that buying flowers and balloons isn't a crime. Right. You can go buy those same things on the day of a murder and having and not do anything. Okay, so keep going. Maybe she got jumped by a clown. Who took those things and then killed Marlene. Yes. We don't know. But what's the likelihood that this murderer was an experienced clown who just happened to have the entire outfit in her closet on call for any murders or children's birthday parties? I don't know. That might have popped up. The cops thought pretty slim. And so they went ahead and contacted the three costume shops in the Palm Beach area. Now, this is 1990. You cannot Amazon a costume if yeah. you want it. And it's not Halloween, it's May, so you can't buy a costume anywhere. You have to go to the costume store. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, the owners of Spotlight Costumes uh, had a curious interaction the day before the murder. So they ask all three, and Spotlight Costumes are like, yeah, we sold a clown. 
very recently. And it was weird. Let us tell you about it. Now, they had just closed up shop for the evening, day before the murder, and they hear a loud knock at their door. And there stands a woman with brown eyes and dark chocolate brown hair. Did I mention that Sheila has brown eyes and brown hair? She does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's wearing a men's work shirt. And she says to them that she really needs a clown costume. And she's sorry to bother. She knows it's late, but she really needs it now. Can they sell it to her? She has to go to a birthday party the next day or something. It's urgent. And even though they're closed, the ladies at Spotlight Costume recognize the opportunity to make some money. And so they let her in. They figured, why not, you know? So this woman then purchases one deluxe Ruby's clown costume, one orange clown wig, a set of Bob Alexander clown makeup, and a red sponge nose. The total comes to like 60-some dollars because it's 1990. Right. (laughs) The owners have a copy of this receipt. Mm -hmm. This is an awful lot of damning information against Sheila. These owners are also point out, point her out in a lineup of pictures. They're like, yeah, it was that lady. She came in and bought a clown costume. Mm -hmm. But just like the thing at Publix, it's not a crime to buy a clown costume. Not even early in the evening, the day before a clown commits a murder. No matter how weird it might be, there is always the possibility of coincidence. This is circumstantial evidence. And there's not like, there's like all the security cameras at the time. So they don't have video of Sheila either. It is, however, enough information to get a search warrant for Sheila Keene's apartment. Great. So authorities go to Sheila Keene's apartment as soon as they could. And they talk to the neighbors a little bit who say that they're shocked that Sheila and Mike are not married because Mike Warren is there all the time. Oh, yeah. They did not find the murder weapon, the clown suit, or the white Chrysler. They did find orange synthetic fibers that look suspiciously like the hairs out of a bright orange clown wig and long brown human hair. They also found a pair of black shoes that matched the description of the clown's shoes and had acrylic yellow fibers stuck in the soles, the same kind of fibers that were used in the ribbon to tie off the balloons. Hmm. Now, these items are bagged up and taken to be preserved because they might not have been able to DNA test them back then, but detectives knew enough to keep this stuff because it might be useful later. The last piece of the puzzle is the right white Chrysler, right? We know exactly what car it is. Where's, where's the freaking car? It didn't belong to Sheila Keene, but who did it belong to and where was it? Four days later, the white Chrysler shows up abandoned in the parking lot of a Winn-Dixie just five miles from the Warrens' house. Inside the car, there is no murder weapon or clown suit, but there were more orange fibers, more long brown hairs, and more of the yellow ribbon fibers, which the investigators dutifully collect and save. So who owns this car? Well, it's registered to a local rental company called Payless Rental Car. Mm but they hadn't seen it in almost two months. It had been rented out and never came back, but the renters, they thought they had returned it. Um, Can you think of a sketchy location where this missing in action white LeBaron could have accidentally been dropped off? I don't know. I know, it's very hard. That's right, Michael Warren's used car lot, and the way they got there is extremely shifty. One of Michael's employees told the police that 45 days before Marlene's murder, a couple called to Bargain Motors and asked about returning their rental car. They said, we rented a white Chrysler LeBaron from you. How do we, I guess they had a problem getting it back to them. And Michael said, where's the car? They told them. And he said, leave the keys in the visor. We'll come pick it up. He knows it's not his car. Right. This employee that answered the phone originally then drove Michael and Sheila to pick up the white Chrysler. Hmm. And again, Bargain Motors does not own this car. The woman who 
had rented the white Chrysler just made a mistake. Right. Because in Michael's ad, it does use the words pay less. Right. So mm-hmm. she just made it made an absolutely understandable mistake. And Michael didn't correct her. And he also told the employee who drove them there not to say anything about this car. Now, Michael and Sheila are tracked to be in possession of a car that, with the exception of one phone call and one employee, cannot be traced back to them. Believe it or not, this is still not enough for an arrest. Oh, my God. But it is pretty fishy. Fishy enough to look further into his car rental company. And so investigators probe a little further into Bargain Motors. They didn't find anything that could be linked to Marlene's murder, but they did find a whole lot of other illegal stuff. As it turns out, Michael had been cracking open and turning back the odometers of all of the old cars (gasps) on his lot. Oh my God. Yeah, this makes the car look like a way better buy because it looks like it has far fewer miles on it than it actually did. So he could sell these like near-death automobiles to people with bad credit and no money. And they found evidence of him doing this with over 60 vehicles. Wow. Those are just the ones they could check. Oh, my God. Yes. So Mike gets arrested and convicted of 43 counts of racketeering, theft, and odometer fraud, and then thrown into jail, where he remained until 1997. And Marlene's case went cold. But don't worry. That's not the end. 27 years later. (laughs) So it's 2017 now. Right. A local reporter to Palm Beach decides to do a piece on the anniversary of Marlene's murder because this murder is like infamous in Palm Beach. It's insane. A clown and they never caught them. People are like terrified murder clowns are going to come to their door and get them. Yeah. We almost had one here. (laughs) So the reporter's like, let's do a little research and see what we can find as an update. And she finds some weird stuff out. First of all, she finds out that the case was reopened in 2013. So it's an active investigation at this point. And it was reopened because of the advancement in DNA technology, which allowed people to, which, you know, they could test all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Super helpful. And they're hoping that these samples will line up, basically. In reopening the case, investigators had also interviewed people again to see if maybe time had removed the trauma and the haze from the event and could jog their memory. And while they were unable to contact Michael, as it seems he had left the state, and so had Sheila, can't say I blame them. Not sure I'd want to hang around at a place where everyone was like, yeah, you uh, you probably killed somebody. All right. Investigators uh, did, they did hear once again from our friend Chris DeSantis, attorney at law. Oh, good. Who remembered one more thing that oh. he had said to Mike during their courthouse oh, conversation boy. about wife murder. And it was that, quote, you know, a killer dressed as a clown would likely get off because witness couldn't tell whether it was a man or a woman. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh, my God. I bet this guy is like the most skilled in the world. He was just like talking to someone, just having a conversation like, hey, you know, like if you're dressed as a clown, yeah. that's how you get away with it. I mean, that's like us every week. Exactly. Talking about how to get away. That's like if one of our <laughs> listeners poisoned someone and fed them to pigs. We'd right. be like, oh, um, no. <laughs> exactly. So. But it, it worked. <laughs> so we weren't we weren't wrong. No, we're, no, no, but don't. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> so. Now, the reporter thought, okay, well, if the cops weren't able to contact Mike or Sheila, this this Chris stuff is interesting, but I really want to know what they're up to. She thought, maybe I can find them. I don't have, like, jurisdiction to contend with. I can look anywhere. So she has her researcher try and find one or both of them, which turned out to be easier than she thought because, much to everyone's surprise, including Marlene's parents and her son, Joe, Mike and Sheila had gotten married. Oh. 
After he was released from prison in 1997 and during his prison sentence, Sheila had gotten divorced from her clan member husband. Nice. Did nice. I forget to mention that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sheila was married to uh, a man who was 20 years her senior and was very publicly a member of the clan. So pretty well versed in doing terrible things in a disguise. Mm-hmm. 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 But I digress. After Only she divorced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get rid of that guy. He's the worst. After Mike's release from prison, Sheila and Mike resumed, or if you want to believe them, started their mm-hmm. relationship. Then in 2002, the happy and curiously wealthy and carefree couple ran off for the weekend and had a cozy little Vegas wedding before taking all the money Mike had inherited after his wife's unfortunate murder, a murder which he did not carry out and the killer was dressed as a clown during, so there was no way to tell who it was. Thanks, Chris. They moved to the sleepy, upscale, lakefront community of Abington, Virginia. They also bought a fast food restaurant just over the Tennessee border called the Purple Cow. It looks like movies. It's ridiculous. (laughs) You'll see pictures. And they settled into a beautiful lakefront mansion with a place to dock their boat. How nice. They're doing great. They had been living there as Mike and Debbie. Okay. They're a kind and hardworking couple who would give you the shirt off their backs. Their neighbors in this community love them. They think Mike is great and they don't know who Sheila is. They think she's Debbie. Right. Which doesn't look bad for Sheila at all, that she's the one that decided she was going to change her name. Mm-hmm. Okay. The couple had like, a, I mean, a couple people had little scuffles with Mike, but for the most part, he and Debbie were like beloved in this community. People okay. can, they, there are still people that do not believe they had anything to do with Marlene's murder. They wow. like love them. Whereas the Palm Beach neighbors have very different things to mm-hmm. say. Um, so they ran the Purple Cow for years successfully and then had recently retired. Wow. No, thank you, Debbie. We know you're still Sheila, okay? And now, thanks to this reporter and her intrepid investigator, so did the police in Palm Beach. And this was enough for an arrest warrant. Once this was obtained, the Palm Beach police made a phone call over to the Abington Police Department, who were like, oh yeah, we'll definitely help with that. (laughs) And they organized a sting. Yeah. So they set up police to watch (laughs) and then like apprehend their car and get her out of the car. It's very fun police work. Mm. On September 27th, When they arrest Sheila, she's very much like, again, cool, calm, casual. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things she says is like, is my husband arrested too? She's not too curious about why they're there. Right. And I will say, at this point, Michael Warren has not been charged with anything. Mm. If he listened to that lawyer, man, I don't know that he can be. Right. It turns out at this point also that those pesky DNA tests had also come back and they confirmed that the hair in the white Chrysler, both clown and human, matched the hair they found in Sheila's apartment and they both belonged to Sheila. Yeah. They also found fibers, uh, the the balloon uh, ribbon fibers that they matched up to Mm -hmm. with the ribbons in the car and on her shoes, all on the murder balloons. Now, Sheila has been indicted Sheila is waiting trial. And because of COVID, she is still awaiting trial. She's in jail. But I think the wildest part of this whole thing is that Michael doesn't face any charges right now and might never because he thought to ask a lawyer. Wow. Yeah. And that is the Palm Beach clown murder. And I guess he didn't like pay Sheila. No. To do it. No, she did it of her own. I mean, we don't know any of it, but he wouldn't have. This was like his girlfriend. 
who once she, if she did it, got rid of the wife, they were able to be together. And they hadn't anticipated the odometer fraud thing. So if that had never happened, they could have just left the state immediately afterwards. Right. So wild. Yeah, because, and there were so many people that were like, no, this, it was her. It was, this is the person who did it. And you have evidence, but it's all circumstantial evidence. Yeah. So until they could like kind of confirm that the two of them like ran away together and started another life, the prosecutor in Palm Beach just felt that they didn't have enough to press charges. And this is basically a lot of it's on the prosecutor for being like, it's all circumstantial. It does not follow the letter of the law, to which I guess they are right. But still, like, come on. No. Wild. So that is <sighs> that is my my story of strange love. Crazy. I'm glad she's in jail right now, though. Yeah, same. But her husband is like, it is absurd that you arrested my wife. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Ugh. Oh, boy. What terrible people this week. Truly. But strange love. Strange indeed. Who should we toast this week? Well. I'll, I'll toast Marlene. Okay. She's just an innocent victim in all of this. Um, And I will toast Isabel. Yeah, the daughter. And her husband. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to them. For getting a great meal. Just trying to do a nice thing for their mom's birthday. Yeah. Oh, Isabel was also pregnant. No. Yeah. And um, and her husband is like so frustrated, like so angry about the whole situation. It's just like Penny just like ruined her, like <laughs> screwed her up. Yeah, mentally. no kidding. That's awful. Yeah. Do we have anyone else to toast this week? Um, Barry. Poor Barry. You know, Barry, I really hope you got your CVS Valentine in time and your lover was not too mad at you. Yeah. To Barry. To Barry. (laughs) And if we found ourselves involved in some strange love, we We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. If it all goes tits. It all goes tits.